0: So, I've I've complained about the air conditioning. My other complaint is some of you are sitting in the wrong seats today. You're not in in your assigned seats, and it's totally throwing me out of equilibrium here. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you came to seek and to save us, and that you continue to seek for us. What a wonderful God you are, in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, I took my little girl, who was about three years old, shopping with me, and went to a shopping mall in South Africa, and um, took her in, walked around for a while, showed her stuff, and then I went upstairs to the bank, and I put Mandy on the ground next to me, and I leaned her against my legs so I could feel that she was there while I did my business in the bank. And then I looked down to reach for her, and she was gone. And there's just, so I looked around the bank, assuming she was somewhere in the bank. She wasn't. So then I walked to the door and I looked outside and looked up and down. We we're on the second floor of this, of this mall. Looked left and right, no sign of Mandy at all. So now panic was starting. So I went next door and I went to the other place, no Mandy, and then I started to run. And at that time, we were, there was a lot of, of fear of children being kidnapped, and that was immediately in my brain. And so I started to run. I don't know how long it was, but I ran up and down that mall. I ran up and down the stairs. I ran out into each of the parking lots, looking for my daughter, desperately searching for her. I was in such blind panic, I didn't have time to even stop and ask somebody for help. It was just something that was absolutely sickening to me, that she had disappeared so quickly, and I assumed that she had to have been taken, because how Mandy could just suddenly disappear like that was beyond belief. And I kept running and running and running and looking for that girl and praying and crying and just absolutely desperate. And as I ran along the upper floor of of this mall, something caught my eye down on the first floor. Mandy was wearing a little white bonnet. And I saw a little white bonnet down on the first floor in a swing. When we'd come in, when we'd come into the mall there was a toy store right in the entrance with a little swing outside, so I let Mandy sit in the swing for a while, and then it was time to go. And, of course, my daughter could have moved out and lived from the age of two onward. Mandy did not want to let go of that swing, so I had to, you know, help her get out of the swing. (laughs) And I'd carried her upstairs with me. And I don't know how that little girl got away so quickly, found her way downstairs, all the way to the other end of the mall and back into that swing. What is amazing is how many people she must have walked by on her way to that swing and nobody even thought, why is this little girl all by herself? But you can understand the absolute desperation that I felt. And when I picked her up out of that course, she fought me again, but it's like, I don't care. This time I'm gonna kiss you. This time I'm so thankful. It actually took me several days before I dared confess to my wife what had happened. The most precious thing in my life, and I lost her. And if you're a parent, you know how desperate you would feel if you lost a child. And some of you, I think, have probably had an experience, something like that. If that's the case, you understand how God the Father feels about you and about me. And about every single human being that comes into existence. And we know that to be true because in the Scriptures, Jesus deliberately told a series of parables... To explain to us that God, our Father, loves every single human being so desperately that he searches and searches and keeps on searching for us. In fact, I call these the lost parables because Jesus told a series of three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of the lost sons. And here, when, when, when you study his parables, to try and understand what's the central thought that Jesus was wanting to communicate through his parables. Here it is. God loves every lost one of us so deeply that he constantly searches for us. And when he finds us, he throws a party in our honor. Why don't you read that with me? God loves every lost one of us so deeply that he constantly searches for us. And when he finds us, he throws a party in our honor. When we get to it, I want you to notice something, that the rejoicing in heaven is not the angels rejoicing. It's God rejoicing. The angels listen in when God rejoices over someone who is lost. So let me set the scene. This is in the latter part of Jesus' ministry. People were being drawn toward him because of his miracles, because of his teaching, but there was something else, and that was that Jesus crossed into territory where no religious leaders ever went. He crossed into the territory of the undesirables, of the people who were rejected by their society. Many of them not even allowed to participate in the spiritual life of the society. And Jesus crossed into their lives with such ease and such readiness that people were drawn to him, not just because of his miracles, not just because of his teaching, but because of who he was. And they were attracted toward him. So people were being drawn toward him. As that happened... There were another group of people who were drawn toward him, but they weren't drawn toward him because they were rejoicing. They were drawn toward him because they were terrified. This man was gathering crowds around him. And right then, the Roman government was always alert to aware, and aware of any kind of insurgence that could happen, any kind of, 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 of a rebellion among people. And as soon as any person gathered crowds like this, the fear would begin to come into the religious leaders. Because if the Roman government took notice and moved against him, they would lose their power. And when you ever wonder why did the Jewish leaders crucify Jesus Christ on the cross, it's because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their finances. He was a threat to their prestige. That's the threat that he was. And so the religious leaders gathered around him, and as they gathered around him, they were looking for reasons to discredit him. They were trying to find some way that they could accuse him of something wrong So that the Jewish people would turn against him rather than following after him. And so they were watching him really carefully to find out whether he would do something that they could attack him over. And what we discover from this setting is that Jesus is a friend to sinners and saints. Now I put saints in quotes because there are no saints until we believe in Jesus, okay? But there are these leaders who considered themselves and they were self-appointed saints They believed that they were the most holy people. We read this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. In those days, they hated the tax collector more than you can imagine because tax collectors actually were extorters. They they had a franchise from the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government. But the way that they paid their salary was they would tax people more than was required by the Roman government. And of course, and what they ended up with was a reputation of people who were the equivalent of the mafia, of extorting people for money, making them pay money for protection. And so, as a result of that, they became people who were so deeply hated that they weren't allowed to participate in the synagogues, they weren't allowed to participate in the religious life of the people, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. That's how much they were despised. In fact, they were despised more than the other group of people who were called the sinners. Now, the interesting thing about the group of the sinners, and they've just arrived. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I couldn't, couldn't avoid that. <laughs> the interesting thing about sinners in those days is this is a category of people who lived such sinful lives they couldn't even hide it, okay? Everybody's a sinner. But there were certain people whose lifestyles were so bad that they were known in the community to be sinners. So here you have the, the 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 lowest possible person is a tax collector as far as their society was concerned. The next level up were the sinners who flat couldn't hide it any longer, that they were such terrible sinners. And all of these people were gathering around to hear Jesus. And he was gathering them to him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. To eat with somebody was the most horrendous thing that they could imagine. Because to eat with somebody, you were saying we're friends. You were saying there's a relationship between us and I am comfortable in your, in your, premise, in your presence and I love being around you. You would eat only with people who were close to you. And they were horrified that Jesus would actually sit there and eat with sinners. And the Pharisees, the the term meant separated ones. They read that in the scriptures, they misread that they were supposed to be completely separated from anybody who was sinful. And these people had a really self-righteous attitude that they were the chosen ones of God. It's interesting, there's two different categories of people in this world. One category of people think God could never possibly love me. And the Pharisees were people who said, God can't possibly not be impressed with me. (laughs) I mean, when God looks at me, he sees, oh my gosh, you're just like me. So the Pharisees had that kind of arrogance. And the teachers of the law, now it's very important that you hang on to that fact. The teachers of the law were those who were responsible to teach the scriptures to the people. And to teach them how God wanted them to relate to him and to teach them of the love of God. Most of us think of the, of the God of the Old Testament as a distant, unloving God, as a big, harsh God who is always ready to punish and, and to bring down judgment. But you read the Scriptures, and Psalm 139 gives you a beautiful picture of it, Psalm 103, Psalm 51, Psalm 32. These are all Psalms that describe the unbelievable grace of God towards sinners. And that's what they should have been teaching people. But they hadn't. Now, the interesting thing is, we would think at this point in time, and Jesus did often confront them and, and deal with them directly. But on this occasion, instead of confronting them and rebuking them directly, Jesus tells them three stories. And as he tells them these three stories, his main focus is on them. We're not gonna to get to the third one today and that is what we call the prodigal son. And you know that story of the man, the man who took all of his inheritance and he left home and he lived a sinful life. Eventually, totally wrecked, he came home, and his father was watching for him to come. And when the, when he came, the father welcomed him home and threw a party, and the older brother was annoyed. The older brother who had never left home. The older brother who was the straight arrow. The older brother who hadn't uh, spent his time. And it's interesting, the older brother knew that he'd been with prostitutes. How did he know that? I think he was jealous. But still, the older brother was really critical of, of the younger brother And the father invites him to come and to join in the party, and he won't. In fact, it's left hanging. We don't know what choice he made. These three stories, Jesus is actually talking to these people primarily. And he's letting them know God loves sinners, but he also loves saints. And he's giving them another opportunity to respond to God. They got the message, by the way. They were furious afterwards because they realized what he was doing. He was comparing them to the self-righteous older brother. But he tells these three stories in order to implant into all of our minds who this God really is. And this is a God who seeks constantly for every single lost one of us. And it's a rebuke of the religious leaders. Listen to this. Ezekiel, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, and he said, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. He's speaking uh, here in a sense of the religious leaders who were abusing, using the people for their own financial needs. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And so Jesus is now going to show them the shift. That they as the religious leaders who should have been shepherding the children of Israel, who should have been caring for God's people, who should have been teaching them about the love of God. He's saying now, that's shifting. And right now, I'm going to be the one who comes for them. And he tells a parable about the lost sheep. By the way, in a parable, you don't try to make every single point make mean something. A parable is a story, and it has one main idea, okay? And when you, when you read a parable, you don't have to make every single word make sense. It's just a story which has a central message to it. And the central message to this first parable is that every single human being is precious to God. Every single, there's nobody who's insignificant at all. Then Jesus told them this parable, and that's such a gracious thing. He doesn't attack them directly. Raymond would have. <laughs> Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. And, and we love stories, don't we? And stories catch, capture you and carry you along, and then all of a sudden, the, the meaning goes and gets to you. And that's what happened. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the last sheep until he finds it? And right now, you're worried about the 99. He leaves them in open country. What kind of an irresponsible shepherd does that? There's only one missing. He's got 99. Just keep the 99. And you leave the rest of them wandering around. See, there's the point. We get lost. We, get, we lock onto what is not really the main point. But I'll explain the main point to you anyway. Because in those days... A man with a hundred sheep wouldn't be shepherding them all by himself. This is a wealthy man. He's got a hundred sheep. He would have assistants who are helping him even in open country. And having assistants helping him shepherd the sheep in open country, and one of them is missing, how would a boss today handle that? He would send an under-shepherd. He would send one of the lower guys. Hey, we're missing a sheep. Go find it. But he doesn't. He goes looking for that one sheep himself. And see the message? Subtle message. That God himself will come after any single one of us. Now, he chooses sheep. We wish that God had compared us to lions. Wouldn't that be nice? I've got lions, my baby. Even even a lion cub. But he compares us to sheep. Sheep are stupid. They are (laughs) They are dumb and they are dirty creatures, absolutely dirty, filthy creatures. A sheep is so dumb that it'll find some grass to eat and will start to eat and will follow the grass wherever that grass leads it. And it will walk way away from safety, not aware of how far it has wandered away from the shepherd. It'll follow its appetite into extreme danger. Had a um, a farmer in my church in South Africa who, who, was, who, who had a sheep herd. Sheep herd, right. And I, I asked him once, because we were always mowing the lawn, we had five acres of lawn to mow. I mean, it was just nuts. So I asked him, couldn't you just bring your sheep here and leave some of your sheep on our property to, eat, to, to, to keep the lawn down for us? He said, the problem is they'll, they'll follow the appetite until they come to a fence and then they'll stop and just stand there and wait until you come lead them to somewhere else. And he said, that You've got to understand, they're too stupid. It's interesting, goats will, will move around, but sheep will just follow their appetite until they get to the end of anything to eat, and then they stop and wait for somebody to come rescue. I've heard that up in, in places, and in fact in South Africa, where my dad grew up, my dad grew up on a sheep farm, that they had to worry about them in the wintertime. And in South Africa, in the, the place of the, the country where my dad was, they would get snow sometimes. And he said, The problem is the wind would blow the sheep up until they ran into a fence. Then they would stop, and then the snow would cover them until they suffocated. It's like, so God compares you and I to sheep because we wander off, and we're oblivious to how much danger we're in. And here the shepherd has lost just that one sheep, but he goes in search of it, looking for it. It's a picture. You can find it there in Psalm 139 that God is constantly searching for us. He never, ever gives up. From the moment of your conception till the moment you die, God is always, always searching for us. And he leaves his 99 and he goes in search of the one. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. I would kick the darn thing. (laughs) I'd put a rope around its neck and drag it. He picks the sheep up and it's probably really heavy and puts it on his shoulders. And they've often used a picture of Jesus carrying a sheep on his shoulders to show no matter how heavy we are, he's going to pick us up and carry And then he goes home. Then he calls the friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. He brings them to come and rejoice with him. I tell you, Jesus said, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, that's the zinger for them they needed to repent as well. They were not righteous. But he puts it in there as a little bit of a zinger. And notice that there is, there is rejoicing in heaven over one who comes home. Peter tells us this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For, we, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls if you've put your faith in jesus christ the shepherd has found you and you found him and the point of this first parable is no one is insignificant no one at all and notice the rejoicing that there's rejoicing in heaven by god and the angels get to listen into it and one of the ways we know that we as a church are picking up the heart of god is we rejoice when we hear stories of people who got saved We rejoice when we hear about people being baptized in our church as a statement of their faith. And here's just a little forewarning for you. Next time we put up pictures of the people being baptized, I want to hear you break out in applause, okay? I want to hear you go, yes, thank God, what a wonderful thing that we're baptizing believers. And the reason why I say that is last time I did this, you sat there like, And you know about Raymond's very short temper? (laughs) That was one occasion when God said to me, (laughs) shh! And so I did. So next time we baptize somebody, we need to celebrate. Because if heaven celebrates over one sheep who comes back to God, then we should have that spirit and that heart inside of us. So the first parable tells us that no one is insignificant the te- second one tells us that everyone is priceless everyone is priceless i was driving down a dusty road in south africa once and there was a man walking alongside the street and i ro- road, and i pulled over because i know i was kicking up this enormous cloud of, du- of, of dust behind me so i pulled over and went on the other side so i wouldn't bury him in in my in my dust but i did when I looked in the rearview mirror, rear mirror, he completely disappeared into all the dust that was around me. And my thought was, I'm so glad I'm not walking along that road. And God said to me, hey, do you know that that man back there is as precious to me as you are? And it's just one of those, I didn't go back and get him, I should have, because then it'd be a greater story, wouldn't it? If I'd turned back and gotten him, but I didn't. But it did, it did sit with me, that God was saying to me, I love that man. As much as I love you, even though he's back there in the dust, everyone is priceless. He tells a story about the lost coin. Well, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, there's two possible reasons why this coin is important to her. First of all, the silver coin, the drachma, in those days was what you would be paid for a full day's labor. And so it's extremely valuable just in and of itself. But what often happened in the culture of those days is that women, girls, would save up silver coins so that when they got married, those coins would be put into their headdress, and it was the equivalent of a wedding ring. And so a woman would wear this on her head as part of her veil, and it would make a statement that she is a married woman, and losing it would be the equivalent to losing your engagement ring, losing your wedding ring. And so it's precious to her, it's vital for her life one way or another. And the houses in those days, you know, we think, oh, well, that's okay, just move the furniture and vacuum and stuff like that. The houses in those days, you only had a source of light coming through the door and maybe a small window. That's how much light you had. The rest of the light, you had to use a lamp in order to see in the house. Plus, they were dirt floors. And so what they would do is they would put reeds down on the floor. Now, can you imagine losing that tiny silver coin and it goes bing, bing, into the middle of everywhere so to search for it she has to clean out the entire house and carefully search to find that one little coin that's how much god loves every single human being every single human being do you want to really get a grasp of how important that is as we approach this next political season And you're sitting there, and a man or a woman stands up and espouses something really stupid. And boy, are they coming up with really stupid stuff. And you sit there, and your natural human response is, take them out, take them down, find something wrong with this person. So we could, here's what we should be doing: is God loves him. God loves her. Jesus died for him. Jesus died for her. And pray for those people. You see on the news, movie stars doing stupid stuff and doing awful stuff. Pray for them. Pray for them. Because that's somebody for whom Jesus died. No one, no one is insignificant. Every single person is a vital person love has the vital love of God and when she finds it she calls her friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me I have found my lost coin that's what we get to do as a church we get to rejoice when people come to know Jesus Christ in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents it's interesting I didn't notice that until now there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God it's God who's rejoicing The angels are listening in, and maybe they join in, but at least we know that God is rejoicing. Jesus said this once to one of those tax collectors. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That tax collector's name was Zacchaeus. Do you remember the story about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was one of the despised tax collectors. And he was apparently a short man. He couldn't see over the tops of the crowd, so he climbed up in a tree, so that he could see Jesus. And when I was in Sunday school, we had a song that said Jesus looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm coming to your house for tea. And Zacchaeus came down and Jesus went to his home. Zacchaeus believed in him. Zacchaeus repented and said, I'm going to repay double everything that I've ever taken from others. And Jesus said, this is what happens when somebody lets me in for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what God did in crossing that enormous chasm from heaven. Jesus took upon himself humanity, and he came to seek and to save us. No one is insignificant. Everyone is priceless. We come to the Lord's table here in just a few moments, and we eat bread, and we drink the cup, and what that does is it gives us a tactile reminder of what Jesus Christ did in order to find us. We, because we rebelled against God, have brought God's condemnation upon ourselves. We have condemned ourselves to hell. But because he loves us, God became a man named Jesus. And Jesus, when he was nailed to the cross, took the full responsibility for your sin and mine upon himself. And he was punished in your place and mine. Then he was buried. Then he rose from the dead to offer eternal life. And the bread and the wine, just help us to remember that his body was broken. He was punished in our place. And his blood was spilt that we might be cleansed. Now, I want to alert you to something else that we're going to be doing more and more often. And it is this. We will often tell the gospel. We will often explain who Jesus is and what he did. And when we explain the gospel, you're going to be going, Hey, Raymond. You keep telling this story. And your eyes roll in your head. And here we go again. We're telling the gospel story. That's not what we're going to be doing. I was taught as a baby Christian. Wonderful little church. Where the pastor said, I'm going to present the gospel often. Sometimes every week. And when I present the gospel, it's simple. It's clear. Jesus is God who took the punishment for our sins so that we don't have to go to hell. He was buried. He rose from the dead to give us eternal life. He said, it's such a simple message. And I'm going to tell you that story over and over again. And you're not allowed to get bored. Your job is when you hear us present the gospel, is to pray. To pray, God, if there's somebody here today who's never yet understood the gospel, help them to understand it. And God, if there's somebody here today who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ, may this be the day they believe in Jesus Christ. I was taught that as a baby Christian, and it stuck with me forever. It's just the most amazing thing. As soon as I hear somebody presenting the gospel, it's automatic, I start praying. And, it's like, and I'm thankful that the people in that church, the pastor then, taught me that. Understand that at a time like that, we, there's only so many ways you can explain the simplicity of the gospel, okay? But when you hear it explained, start to pray. If there's somebody here who doesn't understand it, Lord, help them to understand it today. And Lord God, if they haven't yet accepted Christ as as their Savior, may they make this the day they believe in him. And if you haven't, this is your day. That God has brought you here, this may be the day you make that choice to let Jesus Christ come into your life. Why is that? How do I know we're supposed to do that? Because Jesus sent us to seek for the lost. He spoke to his disciples, and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent me to seek and to save the lost, he said to his disciples, I'm sending you. After his resurrection, the disciples gathered around him, and some of them didn't believe. I love the fact Matthew was honest. Some of them, when they saw Jesus, it was like, some of them didn't believe. Nobody comes back from the dead. And Matthew reports it because the Bible is honest that some of them didn't believe. And then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, including the command to go and make disciples. And I am with you always. And so our job is to be used of God in seeking and saving those who were lost. Like Jesus, we must be in continuous search mode, as he leads us in populating heaven. That's what God is like. That's what he wants us to be like. Several years ago, we were doing a baptism on Ponto Beach, scheduled for four o'clock in the afternoon. And at that time, I was the associate pastor and the pastor of of our church. His name was Dan Greider. Dan Greider was an evangelist at heart. He still is an incredible evangelist. We scheduled the baptism for four o'clock on the beach. It starts to get, dark and cold, and we want to do the baptism at four o'clock. Four o'clock, actually about 3.30, Dan was there. Four o'clock came, all right, time to do the baptism. Dan's gone. Like, 4.15, Dan is gone. Like, hey, come on, man. We're supposed to be baptizing people. Where is Dan? Dan arrived sometime between 4.15 and 4.30 with a man with him. And he said, I want you to meet this man, I forget his name, introduced us to this man's name. And he said, I saw him sitting on on the beach, and I went up and started to chat to him, and he has accepted Christ as his Savior, and he's going to be baptized with us. And it was like, oh, Dan was always in search mode. You know, here's Raymond. We've got to get this thing going, four o'clock, it's time to do this. (laughs) Raymond didn't even see that man, Dan did. Went over, chatted to him, led him to Christ, and we baptized him right there. That's the spirit of Jesus that I pray we will all pick up on, that we would all have it inside of us. It's not that hard. I want to suggest something. Just think about friendship, okay? One of the simplest parts of of being able to be part of what God is doing is just called the friendship connection, and that is cultivate friendships. Just make friends. Maybe family members, you need to be friends, but just cultivate friendships, And cultivate friendships and don't be in a panic to lead them to to Christ. Whatever you do, just cultivate a friendship and let time take its course, okay? Because very seldom do we ever get to lead someone to faith in Christ the minute we meet them. You want to, first of all, establish a relationship with them and then pray and wait until God's God's timing with that. And listen to their story. (laughs) Christians are so bad at this. We always want to tell our story. We meet somebody and, we want to, and they say, oh, let me tell you about me. I talk about myself. I talk about myself. If you want to reach somebody, you've got to let them tell you about themselves. You want to know where they are. You want to know where they've been. You want to know what their experience has been. I, this week, they called me from the office and they said, one of your long-lost nephews is here. And I was going, what? I was out picking something up. And they said, his name is Joe. And I'm going, I don't have a long-lost nephew named Joe. Well, they got it wrong. It was Joel. And I got here, and Joel was here. My long-lost nephew. Hadn't seen him. The last time I saw him was 20 years ago, and the time before that was 40 years ago. And here is Joel. And thankfully, I'd just written that. Listen to their story. And so Joel and I sat down. What a wonderful guy he is. He's just amazing. And he just lives in L.A. now. And hopefully he's going to come down and hang out with us a lot. And just listening to his story, I could tell, mm now's not the time to find out where he is spiritually. Because he and his father had a massive falling out over this issue. And so it was a matter of just wait. Don't push it right now. Hopefully he'll be back. We can talk about it more later on. But he needs to know that I've heard him and that I'm not condemning him for the fact that as far as I know, he doesn't believe in Jesus right now. It's okay. Friendship... Life, family will come through. And then patiently prepare for the next steps. Be ready to take the next steps with the person. What could those next steps look like? First of all, tell them your testimony. Tell them that you believe in Jesus. It's the most amazing thing because you're just telling them, I believe in Jesus. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise God in heaven. Let your light shine. And the way you let your light shine is just simply tell them, I believe in Jesus. Here's how it happened. Here's why I believe in Jesus. They could argue all kinds of things and people will do. Okay? People will say, I can't believe that a man was swallowed by a fish, by a whale. How? Oh, that's stupid. They don't have to believe that for crying out loud. You don't have to believe that, that, that Jonah was swallowed by a whale in order to be saved. I, don't, I can't believe that God created the world in six days. Who cares? You don't have to believe that God created the world in six days in order to be saved. Are you with me there? They'll come up with all kinds of arguments and all kinds of stuff. Who cares? That's not the important thing. The important thing is who Jesus is and your own personal testimony. Explain the gospel to them. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, stay tuned. Every time we present the gospel, learn it, for crying out loud. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, it's there in a nutshell. Go and read that until it's embedded inside of you. So that someday, if somebody says to you, how can I be saved? How can I become a child of God? You can go, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. He's God, who became a man, who took the punishment. for You know what I'm saying? Be ready to explain it to them. And invite them to church. Because often one of the key things for people to come into God's kingdom is to be around God's people. And there's just something amazing that happens. I find if people have been in God's presence in His people, it's way easier to tell them about Jesus Christ because they've actually met Him. (laughs) They don't know it, but they've met Him in His people. So to make it a little bit easier for you to invite people to church, we now are offering two services, one at 10 a.m. in the morning and one at 5 p.m. in the afternoon. And if you look at our sign, the sign outside now says 10 and 5 o'clock. The 10 a.m., we're designing it to be a family service so that people of all ages can gather here and we want to make sure that as more and more possible on Sunday mornings, we welcome people into a family worship service. that's designed for a broad switch of of ages and stuff like that. So Sunday morning as a family service. 5 p.m. is designed for the next generation. In fact, Tony's going to have a new title from now on. He's the next generation pastor, not just assistant pastor. He's the next, or what was your other, anyway, whatever it was before. (laughs) It's the next generation pastor. We actually started this about, what, six weeks ago, guys? And these are some of our, our key players right in that as well. We started it then because we realized we've got high schoolers who are graduating. We better catch them before they go off to college and we lose them. So we started right away, just jumping the deep end. And Tony came up with, you should, no, you're not allowed to see it on Sunday nights. We'll show you some pictures and slides of it just to say you. a beautiful setup on Sunday night. We've got the most incredible band. I don't think there's a church in San Diego that has a band as phenomenal as our Sunday night band. They are just a gift to us. And so if you notice in there, we've got all kinds of new stuff hanging around. We reset for Sunday night so that it becomes a welcoming environment for them. But here's the key thing about the 5 p.m. service. You're invited to come if you are a young adult and if you bring a young adult, okay? And if you're not a young adult and you bring a young adult, you sit at the back with Raymond. (laughs) Are you with me there? You don't go and sit up in the front and in the middle and stand and wave your arms. You sit in the back with Raymond. Because people, young people, are attracted to a church where there are people like themselves. And we want to make it as welcoming as possible that they come. And believe me, I'll come get you. If you sit down front, I'll come get you. (laughs) And so the 5 p.m. service is where, in a sense, with, with this worship service, we're, we're reaching down to reach people, and with the 5 p.m. service, we're reaching up from college age and up into young families and stuff like that. Two different hooks. And by the way, if you come Sunday night, you're not going to like it, and you're going to want to change it. You won't get to, okay? So that's, that's what we're doing with Sunday nights. Isaiah 53 says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And come to the Lord's table, we come in memory of the fact that not one of us is is, is inconsequential, that every single one of us is of such value to Jesus that if you were the only person who ever lived, Jesus would have come for you. And he came in order to reunite us to God our communion table the bread stays bread the the wine stays grape juice <laughs> it doesn't change what makes this a sacred encounter is that this is jesus meal and he is the host at the at when we serve and so we come into his presence and jesus said and when you come into my presence make sure that you don't abuse one another in any way make sure that when you come you're aware that you're gathered as the body of christ jesus is here He's in the room. And he asks us to eat this bread and drink this cup because when we do so, we show forth his, 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 his love, his, his death until he comes. So when we come to the table, Jesus is present right now. It points us to the past that he took the punishment for our sins. And it points to the future that he's going to be returning sometime soon. And this is a table for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, we invite you to come and to join us. We'll be serving you the bread and ask you to go ahead. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, go ahead and eat the bread right away. It's a statement. Just as I take this bread into my mouth, I have taken Jesus into my life. And then when we serve you the wine, hold on to it and we're going to drink together. Paul tells us that we must be careful that we don't treat this as a throwaway ritual, but that we come here to meet with Jesus and with his people. So let's prepare ourselves to come to the table, okay?